thanks, Connie. Uh, Connie and I were and are very good friends, and uh, I do I do want to express my appreciation. I'm, I'm glad you're here this morning, Connie, and I'm glad you're engaged with this organization. Uh, Connie did mention some of the work with the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act with their trade bill, but uh, but the Conservation Caucus, one of my concerns was that if, given our work on Africa, we, we I, I co-authored legislation to set up a national park system across Africa. And it impacts six different uh, countries. Um, in order to protect that, uh, we set up the Conservation Caucus, which also tackles a lot of other problems uh, on the planet. But the, the thought that we can engage and sort of set standards and help protect uh, and put in place a plan uh, that is balanced, that is sustainable for Africa. We have a new initiative, um, the Electrify Africa Act, which I've authored, and we use the OPEC uh, reauthorization to try to generate and um, uh, guarantee investments that will basically put the African states all on the electric grid. I mean, if you look, if you look at one part of the world where you have where you don't have uninterrupted power, it's in Africa, and one of the reasons you don't have a lot of investment is because of this fact. Uh, and to the extent that we now uh, can move forward with projects which will allow us uh, to bring electricity, you can imagine that what that would mean for uh, people who uh, are studying at home, students, right now by kerosene lamp or burning charcoal or, or wood or dung, and uh, as a consequence, this is the derivation of much of the health hazards in the country, and much of the premature blindness and so forth. And so atta attacking this is going to allow uh, the next generation of Africans to have a much better life, but to do it in a, a more sustainable way. Now what strikes me, and this is why balance is so important in life, is the absolutist position that bringing any energy like this to Africa, for example, uh, hydro. We had the legislation blocked by legislation in the Senate that says, well, all right, but you're not going to use any hydro. For those that have, I've been to most of the countries in Africa, to be out to the Inga Dam, you can see the consequences of what you can do with the rapids there and the, and the fastest fall rate anywhere in the world. You could light up all of West Africa. But because the absolutist position that you won't be allowed to use electric power generated by hydro, you're not able to move forward. There's no balance. And one of the things this organization does is to try to bring balance so that you can do, you can achieve the types of objectives we're talking about. Let, let, let's just talk about Ukraine right now. How advantageous would it be if instead of flaring our gas, our natural gas here in the United States, because we have a glut on the market, instead of capping wells, how advantageous it would be to ship gas into that market over in Eastern Europe, where countries like Lithuania, for example, are 100% dependent on Russian gas and therefore pay the highest price in the world for gas. Now, this would be an enormous advantage to us. It would help us on our, uh, on our deficits. It would certainly confound the problem for Russia with respect to their significant deficits as a share of GDP. It's a big problem right now. And yet, Russia today stands in the position 
of having 70% of its exports to be oil and gas and 52% of the support for the military in Russia and for the government in Russia comes from this amazing monopoly that they hold over Eastern Europe. And rather than break that monopoly, the administration will choose instead to ask Mr. Reed, Mr. Reed to drop out of the legislation any reference or any strategy that would allow us to take our excess gas and put it into the Ukraine. Even Poland, even Hungary, as dependent as they are on Russian gas last year, in the moment of crisis, shipped two billion cubic yards of gas into Ukraine in order to try to stave off the problem. Because they could see the President Putin had Hungary by the throat and was going to, frankly, uh, just throttle that country unless he got its way. And it tore the country apart. Had we stepped in, had we announced some massive strategy, you know, some U.S. major effort where we were going to get gas into the into to Ukraine, it may have done have done something to cause second thoughts in Moscow. But we're not sending the type of message that Russia would consider as serious. We're not saying we will go and compete with you to our benefit and to negatively impact your economy should you use your monopoly power in this way. No, we're sending a very different message. The message is, no, that uh, we'll continue to flare the gas here. We, we don't want to do that because uh, balance is not part of the strategy with this administration. And I want you to ask yourself, how well has this strategy of how we would engage Russia and Putin worked? I remember my first meeting with Putin, uh, me and another member of Congress were asked to meet with uh, two members of the city council from St. Petersburg. This was right after the collapse. And um, one of them was Putin, he was vice mayor. And I didn't know much about him. And we brought along uh, an individual we knew, um, Jack Wheeler had done some work in, in Russia, and therefore knew a little bit of Russian. And I remember at the, um, we were at Irish Times, having a few beers, <laughs> and Vladimir Putin, the vice mayor of St. Petersburg, and Jack were in the middle of this arm wrestling competition. And uh, Jack's a very strong guy, so I can tell you Putin must be in incredible shape. And as these sinews were, you know, you could, you could, you could see every blood vessel there as, uh, as they were fighting each other, and all of a sudden, Putin jumps up as Jack jumps up, and Putin yells, CIA, and points into Jack's chest, and Jack points back, KGB. And that's the first time I realized, you know, this was more about more than just attitude here, you know, it seemed, uh, seemed we had some wider, uh, wider problems to discuss. And I think uh, that afterwards, in, in talking, with those two representatives of Russia, or St. Petersburg, it, it, it was clear to me that the hostility felt uh, towards the former breakup of the, of the Soviet states was considerable. And this, and this was an individual who, uh, who took great pride in his work. Uh, uh, I, I was in East Germany for, back when I was in the state senate on an exchange program in the early 80s. And, I, I will remember 
the way that society worked. And our broadcasts into East Germany were just beginning to, <coughs> under Reagan, were, were beginning to really hit a nerve. We had the pulse because we were using East Germans now, not the old bombastic West German propaganda that was coming in there. We were using young East Germans that were having the same effect as young Poles and Czechs on, the, on, on moving public opinion. And shortly after that, when, um, when East Germans rose up, and I, I know some of the East Germans uh, stay in touch with them, I mean, they overran the headquarters for, um, for the Stasi secret police went through the files and tore everything apart, and then headed, you know, uptown to where the KGB headquarters were. And the KGB had run away except for one man. That was a local officer in charge in East Germany. That was Vladimir Putin. And as they came in the door, Putin pulled his revolver and aimed it to the forehead of the first guy coming in the door and said, uh, you'll back out now or I'll take out the first six of you. I heard about what happened at the Stasi headquarters. This is Russia's KGB. You won't take any of our files here. Uh, this is a guy who obviously is a unreconstructed uh, enthusiast you know, for Russian power. And so the thought that our president had that we would, after all of the political capital that Poland and the Czech Republic put forward in terms of saying, yes, we will do an interceptor program that will allow the uh, Europe and the United States to protect itself against the launch out of Iran, that we will put ourselves, even though we're on the, on the border with the former Russian republics, you know, with Belarus and so forth, we will, we will put ourselves forward to help protect. When we pulled the rug out from under them, ostensibly because we were going to push the reset button with Russia. Apparently, Vladimir Putin read that differently than the calculus down at the White House. And uh, certainly the Poles and the Czechs were very, very angry. That was the first sign to them that they could not count on the United States uh, in terms of the uh, commitments we've made. And so I, I think that the takeaway from that on the part of Putin was a different assumption about who he was dealing with now compared to the Reagan years. And I think we have con continued to see that lack of leadership. Um, the, the failure, even now, to agree to a national program or to engage the Republicans in the sign that we're going to use natural gas here in the United States as a strategic asset and ship it into Eastern Europe. When we have the heads of state of four countries in Eastern Europe, Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, all writing here in the United States, but they're not writing the president. They write the Speaker of the House. And they say, Congress, please, please, figure out a strategy to ship LNG into our market. These are the countries that are coming to the aid of the Ukraine in terms of trying to keep that economy afloat. And my, my real concern here, and of course yesterday, as you saw, we passed in committee bipartisan measure. I really have to thank Adam for uh, stepping in during part of this, Adam Kinsinger, and Steve for his good work helping rallying the troops. It was a strong bipartisan statement. And we had quite a discussion over the last week during our hearings prior to the markup on this strategy. And it's the general feeling of Congress that we should have a strategy here that will help 
prop up and export into this market. It's going to create American jobs. Frankly, it is far more uh, disadvantageous to the environment to be flaring the gas than it is to capturing and shipping it when you've got a glut. I mean, we have the same argument here, by the way, in terms of the pipeline from Canada. The Canadians ask us, whoa, whoa, whoa. you've got the facilities that are the most clean burning in the world, you and Europe. Why shouldn't we ship it to your refineries? Why do you want us to ship it to the refineries of your economic competitor in Asia? Those are the least, that's the least clean burning facility. But that pipeline will be built, as they tell us. They'll simply build it to Vancouver. They'll build it to Vancouver and ship it to our economic competitor. And they ask us this question. Energy prices are 30% less in the United States than they, are, than they are in Asia. Why do you want to inverse that? Why do you want to drive energy prices in China lower or as low as the United States? Because right now we're able to compete in light manufacturing because energy is as big a component almost as labor cost. Why do, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this to your ally, Canada? This is the way they feel about it. They're astounded. But you have to get yourself into the mind of uh, you know, those in the administration. I, I watched a press conference of their allies the other day, and they said, this oil needs to stay in the ground. Well, it's not going to stay in the ground. It's going to be shipped instead to China, and those refineries are not as clean burning as ours. So I do not understand the logic of this. But that takes us, not understanding logic takes us to Iran. And with respect to the thought that we are going to extend an olive branch, and this is the words of representative to the, from the administration to me and to Elliot Engel, we want you to reverse, Elliot and Ed, we want you to reverse, they say, your strategy of sanctions on Iran when we put the sanctions bill in place, when we were in the process of doing it. We'd already passed one, one measure that we've been involved in, and we met with the undersecretary of the, uh, of the uh, Treasury and the former administration that worked through several administrations, and he had shared with us his vision of being able to block repatriation of earnings into Iran in order to force them to make a tough decision either compromise on their nuclear weapons program or face economic collapse. So we put that in our, in our bill. We passed it out of committee unanimously uh, last year. We passed it out of the, off the floor, 400 votes to 20 with the administration opposing it. And the consequences were that when it got to the Senate, the administration intercepted because they had been working with a plan instead to lift sanctions. As, as some of the ambassadors shared with us, why would you, ambassadors from the Middle East, from some of the Sunni uh, governments there, at a time when Iran is undermining the governments in Azerbaijan, in Yemen, in, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, etc. It's a long list. Why would you lift these sanctions? Because they're now going to have more ready cash at their disposal in order to try to topple the regimes. I won't go into detail right here in terms of how they're doing this, but they're very, very active. 
okay? And for those of you that read the paper, you saw, you see what happened vis-a-vis -vis Israel with the longer-range rockets that Iran was trying to transfer into the hands of Hamas. I mean, that's a game-changer. To have rockets which can now hit Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and in the middle of this negotiation, and to defy the very words of agreement in the original round of the negotiations, no, they're not, they're not stopping on their construction of their plutonium reactor. Yes, they announced, we're making new breakthroughs in terms of how fast our centrifuges spin, supersonic centrifuges. They're, they're continuing to do the R&D, and so now you have not a word out of the administration about this latest violation, which tells you everything about their true intentions. Well, with that said, I know I've got some colleagues here, and we're going to have questions. So, Jim, what's the next part of this program? You're going to introduce uh, Adam to come up and give a few remarks and take a seat, and then followed by Mr. Shabbat. Well, so, let me uh, introduce Adam Kinzinger, who uh, in the U.S. Air Force has flown missions in Afghanistan, has flown in Iraq, has uh, served with, uh, with distinction, serves on our committee and on the very important Energy and Commerce Committees as well. Uh, Adam, why don't you come on up? And um, Steve Shabbat, who's uh, represented um, Ohio for 17 years now and is a good good friend of Marie and mine uh, for those years. And we, we missed him when he was gone, and we were uh, hooting and hollering uh, the day he was reelected to come back. Um, he serves as well on um, the Judiciary Committee. And uh, Steve, why don't you come up and join us as well? He is the chairman of the Asia and Pacific Subcommittee and has traveled with me on a lot of the, we've been three times to Asia, by the way, in the last year, working on TPP, trying to offset the signals coming out of Mr. Reed and from the administration. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's turn it over to, uh, to Steve Shabbat. All right, I'll be very quick. Um, as a matter of fact, I learned my lesson years ago when I was at my daughter's class. I think she was in the first grade at the time. It was one of these bring your dad to class and tell about your job kind of things. And after I got done talking to these uh, little first graders, this little girl came up to me. She's a little girl. And she said, uh, sir, that's the worst speech I ever heard. What <laughs> 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 did I say wrong to these kids? Uh, my daughter wanted to cheer me up. She said, dad, don't worry about her. She just repeats what all the other kids say. <laughs> so, Ed pretty much said it all, but just let me add a very few things. Um, Ed had mentioned uh, the, the Canadians saying, you know, why would you want to ship this stuff off to China and uh, the oil? And, uh, uh, you know, our Secretary of Energy, appointed by uh, President Obama, uh, Mr. Xu, had, had said that his goal was to get energy prices here in the U.S. up to European levels. That's what he said. And there's a statement out there, the press has never covered this thing, but and he was, that statement was made before he was appointed our Secretary of Energy. And it just sort of shows you the mindset, the war on coal mindset. It, it helped him get the votes in the Senate he needed for confirmation. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the question that, that I had kind of been asked to address just very briefly was, you know, are, is our policy uh, under this administration, our foreign policy, adrift? And I would say, yes, it absolutely is adrift. There's a power vacuum around the world, uh, from the Middle East, 
to the South China Sea to yes to Ukraine. Um, and as, as Chairman Race mentioned, um, at the very start, I think the administration started out with Russia on the, on the wrong foot. Um, this so-called uh, reset, the button, and you know what a debacle it was, and the language barriers, and they had it all fouled up. Um, but the policy really made no sense. What they were essentially doing, I mean, why did we need to reset the policy? Why was there a strained relation between the U.S. and Russia? It wasn't the U.S.'s fault. George Bush had famously uh, looked into Putin's eyes and seen his soul and all that business. So, you know, he was trying to improve relations with Russia. What did Russia do in response? They went into Georgia and, and took over uh, uh, South Ossetia and, and Abkhazia. And, and, uh, and so we should have known. And also, as Chairman Rice uh, mentioned, um, the administration from the very start uh, terminated a deal which had been uh, paid for at some high cost from the governments of Poland uh, and, and the Czech Republic. You know, we were going to put missiles uh, in there, an anti-missile system that Russia objected, so we backed out. It was very embarrassing to those countries and sent the wrong word to their leader. Uh, and the chairman mentioned some of these uh, stories about Putin. I've never arm wrestled the guy, but he's, he's tough. And, and uh, we know that, and uh, I don't think this administration has done this from the start, and we're seeing the results right now. And, and it, sometimes you're asked, well, what can we do now? The, the, the problem is much broader than that. We shouldn't be in this position at, at this point in time, and our options are much more limited now than they should have been. Um, and uh, and in, in relative to China, we're sending all the wrong messages there, too. Our, our close allies in the region, uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and others, they're concerned about us and our involvement and, and how assertive and aggressive the PRC is getting in that region of the world, you know, from island disputes to a whole range of things. Um, and and what, we're, what are we talking about doing? We're talking about cutting back our military at just the wrong times, cutting back the U.S. Army by 13 percent and the Guard by 5 percent, and ending the uh, A-10 uh, Warthog tank killer planes. Why would we need tank killer planes at this time? Well, maybe we need those types of, of planes after all at this time. But the, the thinking of this administration has gotten way ahead of itself. And uh, unfortunately, I think they're out of their league. So I'll, I'll end it there and turn it over to a gentleman who's serving war uniform for our country. And uh, uh, I'm <clears throat> It's good to be out here with you, gentlemen. Um, it's almost 9, so I'm going to say this. Uh, Afghanistan, we've got to keep a relationship with Afghanistan post-2014. I think we've got to make sure that's on, the, on people's conscience, people mind, people's minds going forward. As a veteran of Iraq, too, uh, I mourn every day at the loss of Fallujah, that seemingly the loss of Iraq, and the fact that you've seen Americans give their lives for a country that now seems to be gone. I mean, seemingly gone only because President Obama was eager to keep a campaign pledge to pull all the troops out of Iraq versus keeping a residual force in a strong position there. When America retreats, chaos follows, and we're seeing chaos follow all over the world. And I think at some point here into the future, we're going to have to address the issue of Syria. Syria is not going to hit a terminal point where the war is over. It's just going to metastasize and get worse and worse and worse until we have to do something. So with that, I'll keep it short because I know you guys have questions. It's an honor to serve on the committee with the chairman and with Steve. And uh, there's a group of us that are, are really you know, trying to get back out there and counter the president's message of America's war. We're getting tired with the message of um, there's a reason America needs to be strong, and you see it right now with the chaos that has ensued, ensued uh, everywhere around the globe. So thank you. Okay.
Connie Morella is our introducer. You get the honor of asking the first question, or you can pass. Well, I, I really think I should pass to give others uh, uh, an, uh, an opportunity. But again, I, I'd like to pick up on the idea that... <laughs> 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 I knew there was going to be a pleasure. I was going to be a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of you can go home now. <laughs> about how the United States is being viewed by those countries that are around the Ukraine. What should we do besides the uh, transmitting natural gas, and I guess the problem is the transmission of the natural gas, but what is it we should be doing? Because they are concerned. They're wondering about, you know, where is this great United States our ally? Thinking of Poland, the Czech Republic. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things we do is uh, we sort of reverse the messaging we've been sending about Poland and the Czech Republic. We make it clear uh, that they're members of NATO. Uh, we, we beef up there. We rotate through. Um, uh, I think that at the end of the day, we're going to have to do something on the energy front. So we also ask something of them, and that is that they, that Europe, begin to invest in um, if it's an offshore facility that will receive gas, gas doesn't just have to come from the United States. Obviously, it could come from Central Asia, etc. But they need to be working in tandem. And this is a discussion I had with the German government yesterday. There needs to be a national effort, including one in Europe, that transmits the signals to the marketplace that will impact the ruble, you know, the, the currency in Russia, that will impact the stock market in Russia. Already you see Gazprom stock begin to drop whenever this is discussed, uh, so that there's follow through on all of this. Uh, Adam, do you have? Uh, no, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head. This is uh, Futures markets are instantaneous, right? I think if the, look, it's the same thing that would happen to oil prices in general if the president came out and said, uh, you know, God came down yesterday, we had a discussion, and I had an epiphany, and America needs to be energy independent and supply the world with energy. You would see the futures markets happen immediately, and Russia now trying to use their power to negotiate these natural gas contracts would find themselves in a very defensive posture. So, you know, in, in Hungary recently, they signed a nuclear agreement with the Russians, they got some... Uh, you know, loan guarantees, which our country's not very good at doing. Uh, but in exchange, also, they're getting cheap gas from Russia. The government happens to be up for re-election soon, so there's a benefit to that to them for that. If we would come out and say we're completely dedicated to providing new gas as well, uh, the Russians would not have quite the leverage. And just one thing I would add, uh, President Reagan, neither of the Bush presidents, and even Bill Clinton, none of them would have taken the military option off the table up front. It's something you never take off the table, and he's pretty much said, we're not acting. And I'm not saying we should, but you certainly always keep the opposition guessing on that. Thank you. It, it, this is sort of teen tag, but I'm a native Lithuanian from the great state of uh, Illinois. Good. And all I will say <laughs> for comments is I'm really worried about the Baltics because their economy, forget, forget the gas situation, but their economies are finally beginning to move forward in an independent way. How far-reaching do you think the tentacles of Putin are eventually going to go? Think how difficult it's been for Lithuania. They pay the highest well, cost in all of Europe, uh, I think, on the planet for gas, yeah. uh, because uh, there's a certain hostility in Moscow. And they're 100% dependent on their energy for Russia. Now, at the same time, you did hear the, the speech to the Duma 
where he said uh, the Russian borders, Putin said the Russian borders are not the borders of the current Russian state. And that would imply that those minority populations that are in the Baltic states, I think 22% in Estonia and roughly that uh, in Latvia, a lesser percentage in Lithuania, but he is asserting the right. Now this, there's, a, there, there's a lack of justice in this because when you think about it, the reason that those populations are not there is because Stalin went in and took those, those peoples and sent them to Siberia and they were liquidated. That's when my grandfather escaped. And, they, and, and that was very lucky for, for your family. But for many families, Russians, ethnic Russians, were then brought in and put in, in these. In, in, the same thing had happened in Crimea, by the way. 56% of the Crimean population were liquidated, uh, you know, east of the Urals by Stalin. So it was transplanted with the Russian population. Now, historically, yes. Well, let's not get into all of that. Let's just say it is a complicated mess because of this part of history. But when you have a head of state who then says, my responsibility is to those Russians, wherever they may be, this argument of extraterritoriality as applied to the Ukraine, if applied to the Baltic states, would be a huge problem. The Baltic states have been brought into NATO for that reason and therefore will be protected. But it would be much easier if we were transmitting the right signals and had the right policies, including economic policies. Lithuania is working right now so that within a year they will have offshore a huge LNG uh, terminal. Wouldn't it be nice if the United States would transmit the message that we will ship gas since we have a glut to that terminal? Wow, that would help. Yes. Um, one of my jobs at DOE was to approve export of LNG and the the export standard is set by the 92 Energy Act section 3 it states it shall be approved unless it's shown that the, the uh, export is not in the interest of the United States and what gives expedited is is it's presumed that it is in the interest if you're a TPA this president, I realize, is not uh, all that enthusiastic about words of law, but he keeps, he keeps talking about needing uh, treaty authority to export gas, and that is not the standard, and I really would, would, would ask that more members of Congress and more members stand up and point out what the standard is that is so easy to meet that this we'll, we'll say it more loudly. Uh, other other questions? Well, it's just a comment. I think, you know, Putin's going to keep going until somebody says no. I mean, that's just, I think, his style. Unless somebody pushes back and you have to do more than, you know, uh, canceling the G8 and turning it back to the G7. I think First, competition is the only way that they're going to do this. I was going to say, why wouldn't he? It's non-confrontation. Oh, I don't know. Uh, why wouldn't he keep going until right. we push back? And secondly, I... My prediction, I, hope I'm, I really hope I'm wrong, is he does try to set up something with uh, the Baltic states and eventually have them you know, invoke Article 5 and watch NATO not react, and you just ended NATO. I mean, NATO's over if that happens. But there's a very real alternative to that, and that is for us to undermine his ability to fund his military and his government, which sends 52% of their, their currency for that budget comes from this 
If, if, if we do that, if we threaten that, he, it gives him something to worry about. It gives him, gives him second thoughts. It gets him to the table. That's what we're trying to do so that we don't have to guess in terms of what would happen, what would happen should these hypotheticals arise. Uh, one comment, second question. One, Ripon led the first uh, large-scale congressional delegation into then Czechoslovakia uh, when Shirley Temple Black was the ambassador and, and made a very big show of the support Ripon did back in, way back in the dark ages. Uh, but going back to your Africa and how to power Africa, what's your impression now with the combination Millennium Challenge, World Bank, et cetera, but now the Senate's mocking at the ability to use hydropower in Africa. How are they going to ever self-sustain if they can't have energy and those organizations are now being sort of locked from I don't understand it because I think we could all agree that coal is is uh, <coughs> coal is, is pretty dirty. So if, if your goal is some kind of balanced approach where you're trying to drive towards gas, which is which is twice as clean burning as coal, or or hydro, which is totally clean burning, and you start taking that off the table, it looks like you're you're in league with some of these California groups that say anything that is growth inducing is is bad because it creates economic growth. You have to have sustainable development. You have to have sustainable growth in Africa. That's why we're engaged in, in, in fighting on this front. Steve, Adam, any more? I talked with all three of your schedulers. All three of you have nine o'clock. <laughs> ten minutes after this. Sure I've actually got a school group on. Uh, exactly. You have a school group. So please join me in thanking our three. I want, to, I, want to, I want to encourage Steve, I, I hope you get a better response here. Than that. <laughs>